today. Um, but let's read here. Uh, verse 11 tells us, For this is the message that you heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. And he tells us, Not as Cain, who was of that wicked one, and slew his brother, and wherefore slew he him? Because his own works were evil, and his brother's righteous. Marvel not, my brethren, if the world hate you. That's where we ended last week. He says in verse 14, and here's where we'll focus on today, We know, we know, we know that we have passed from death unto life, because we love the brethren. He that loveth not his brother abideth in death. Whosoever hateth his brother is a murderer, and ye know that no murderer hath eternal life abiding in him. Hereby perceive we the love of God, because he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. But whoso hath this world's good, and seeth his brother have need, and shutteth up his bowels of compassion from him, how dwelt the love of God in him? There's a lot to deal with here as we're getting into this, and we've been talking about over the past few weeks and through this passage about what it means to love, what it means to hate, how to love, how, how to demonstrate hate as well as, as Cain did, and, and, and as well how you and I in this world are told that we're going to be hated by the world. Therefore, we're not called to be best friends with the world, but we're rather in the world, but not of the world. And while we're in the world, we're to make a difference around us. There should be change around us uh, with uh, us being the salt and the light of the world if we're not hiding our light and we're not throwing away our salt then we will be making an impact even in our homes at least we should be uh, but we must check our hearts we must do a this sort of mirror check to make sure that we are living properly according to the lord but now he gets into what first john is really the great theme of first john to a degree one it is apologetic it is defending the faith but two it is giving an assurance of the faith and look at verse number 14 and this is very very key not just for new believers who need to know basics about salvation but really for those who have been saved for umpteen different years okay look at this verse verse 14 we know that we have passed from death unto life john here insists that the believer can come to a place of genuine assurance uh, I'm afraid that unfortunately today we, we sing songs like Blessed Assurance, but we say it with our lips, but we don't often have it with our hearts. And how can we sing Blessed Assurance, Jesus is mine, if we don't have it in our hearts? So first, we need to have assurance that we have come to that place of repentance and faith in Christ and in Christ alone. It, we, we have to have that moment. Now, I want you to know this, though. I'm not one of those, and you might disagree, and that's okay. God will take care of it in heaven. It's not a big deal. I'm not one of those that you have to have the exact date, time, uh, hour written down on a calendar, how high the sun was, if it was cloudy, if it was sunny, uh, in order to know the moment you got saved. How do you know if you are saved right now? Simple. Are you trusting in Jesus and Jesus alone for your salvation? If the answer is yes, then you are saved. If not, there would, be a, a, there would be the opposite of fruit happening. There would be the fruit of the flesh and only the fruit of the flesh in your life. And so what John does here all throughout so far in these first three chapters is he has shown us a lot of this fruit to give us the assurance, right? A, a love for God. If you say and can say that you love God, it is only because you have experienced the love of God that has been shed abroad in your heart that you have been saved. If you are not saved, you do not have a love for God. As a matter of fact, you have a natural rebellion to God. You have a natural separation from God. You won't love what you don't have a relationship with. So you will not love God if you do not have fellowship and relationship with Him. And it is God who, who comes down and who has saved us 
Um, and, and, and as John has been talking about, it is literally the, the truth from the beginning that he's been preaching that this changes us from the inside out. And then now he comes to this proof about loving and, and hating. Uh, to love your brother is another proof that you are born again. Now, it's, it's one thing to, to just come and be a part or to come be a, a spectator, right? If I were to go to a Redskins game, which I won't anymore because they're way overpriced and I can watch them lose from the comfort of my own home, okay? <laughs> no point in, in, in going all the way there to do it. Um, but, but I can go up there and all the people there might like that same team, but we might not all love each other, right? Now, there's a difference, though, spiritually. When we attend church and we're gathered with all the folks who are there to do uh, the, the same thing, which is to worship and to know God, right? Then there should be a natural love for one another. You don't have to explain it. Matter of fact, I think it's even to some degree unexplainable, right? Can you explain to me how everyone in here from different places, different walks of life, different economic backgrounds, different thoughts and opinions, even politically and thoughts on how church should be done, all this stuff, can come together in one place and still have love for one another? Right? It, it, it physically and earthly, we can't explain that. This is why it must be of God. So therefore, to have Stephen love Marty or Richard, right? it's got to be because there is a genuine love of the Lord and because it is a fruit of their love for the Lord. That's why they can love each other. Right? That's why they can have relationship and fellowship. That's why we can have differences of opinion within the church and yet still have fellowship and love with one another. Now, he gives us this assurance that we know. As Spurgeon put it, he says, I've heard it said by those who would be thought philosophers that in religion we must believe but cannot know. I am not very clear about the distinction they draw between knowledge and faith, nor do I care to inquire, because I assert that in Matters relating to religion, we know in the things of God, we both believe and know. Faith is often looked at by the world as blind faith. And unfortunately, many believers today believe that they have a blind faith. I want you to know we don't have a blind faith. You know, we have a faith that sees, that sees spiritual things. And the only reason why we can see spiritual things is because we have been born again by the Spirit that we now can see those things. Uh, the Bible tells us that those who are lost, those who are antichrist, or those who do not know the Lord, that they cannot discern spiritual things, that they don't have that natural ability. Why don't they? Because they're dead in their sins and trespasses. So for you and I who have uh, been saved, who have repented and trusted Christ, that we are now regenerated, made alive, and, and we're told that we can know some things. My faith knows what Jesus did for me on the cross. And my faith believes and puts its trust in what Jesus has done. It is not just that my brain knows, according to the Bible, that Jesus came, died on the cross for my sins, and was buried and rose again the third day, according to the Scripture. But it is then as well that faith goes from the head to the heart, that it believes and has assurance of trusting that happened. I wasn't there that day. But I'm trusting God's Word that tells me that. I'm as well trusting the fruit that when I put my trust in Jesus, that it did change my life forever. That sure, there were those moments and times, and there always will be in our flesh, these moments and times where we just don't feel saved that day. But I want you to know your salvation is not dependent upon you. If it was, none of us would ever have it. None of us would ever keep it. If it's by grace that saves us, it's by grace that keeps us, and it's by grace that will lead us all the way to heaven's gate and all the way through. It is all of God's glorious grace. And so, therefore, we can know. 
You see, if my salvation or keeping my salvation was based upon how I feel, then I would not be able, nor would John would be able to write, we know. Right? To know something is to be assured of it. And my prayer is that each of us would certainly have that assurance in our own hearts, but that we would help others to do the same. And here he's described in this, in this passage that the love of God and for His people is a true test of salvation while also giving a peaceful assurance to the believer. Right? It, it is a, a blessed assurance to truly know Christ. Now, it, even in the midst of your sin or even your waywardness, repentance and, and restoration is literally just a step away. It, it, is, it is a prayer away. It's not so far that you've gone so far from God that there is no longer the ability to be restored or be reconciled or to be assured again. But rather, it's, it's that we continue to go back at those moments of tri- times and trials. It is a spiritual warfare, by the way. It is a spiritual attack that, that comes and says, well, you're, you can't be really saved because you, you looked at this or you said that or you did this or you reacted that way. Well, guess what the Bible tells us? That if those who are in Christ and those who are in Christ are simply those who say, I am trusting in Jesus and Jesus alone, therefore we are in him, that if we're in him, that there's no longer any condemnation. So that means you can no longer condemn yourself. In matter of fact, you shouldn't. All right. Certainly be able and humble enough to to repent when you do wrong, which if you're truly saved, you'll know. Right. You will. Uh, And two, there's no longer any condemnation that the world can can come and tell you, oh, we'll see. My sister who says she's saved, well, she's, she did this, 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 so she must not really be saved. Right? You can't. It, condemnation from anybody else, they can say what they want because I know what Jesus says about me. And he, he tells me that it's not me that has saved myself or me that keeps me saved, but rather what he's done for me. And because I'm trusting in that, that there's no condemnation that I can present myself that can condemn me. There's no condemnation that the world can give uh, to me or to the Lord that can condemn me. And as well as that there's nothing that the devil can say or do that can bring about condemnation once again. As a matter of fact, there on the cross, he is the one that is condemned, no longer us who are in Christ. As a matter of fact, we have been set free to be redeemed means to be bought back off the slave market of sin, uh, to be redeemed, to be reconciled, to be restored back to God. That has been once and once and for all. Now, there are those moments and those times in our life where we sin, where we fall short, where things aren't going good, where we don't have the tinglys on the back of our neck and we don't feel that closest with God. Those are the moments all the more that we must remind ourselves of, you know what? As a matter of fact, can I just be, be honest with you? There's many a day where us as pastors even wake up and say, how in the world am I even saying today? I don't even have a clue. I, I don't even feel like it. How I'm even coming up here this morning, walking up those long that long staircase, and it gets longer and longer some mornings, depending upon how I feel physically and spiritually, emotion, all those things. Now, how in the world? But then, the great thing is that you look up, and there's, there's a cross. That reminds me that it's not my strength that takes me up those stairs. It's not your strength that will take you down to an altar or to get you in that back door, let alone to get you into heaven, but it is what Christ has accomplished. Therefore, I can look up there and say, I know that I have passed from death unto life. And right now, I might not feel it. I might not be running up and down the aisles, but I still know. Now, let me ask you this, all right? Let me try to put this in the, in the application or illustration or both for you. Anyone that's ever been married or had a relationship with parents, let's do parents, all right? That's a little bit easier. <coughs> You ever got disciplined from your parents and you thought it was unjust and unfair and not right? 
Me too. Every single time. I hope you're watching, Mom. No, I'm just kidding. Right? I needed more than what I got, right? And I I was a pretty, I was a decent kid. I was okay kid. I was a kid, right? Now we think about this, though. There are times that we feel that injustice, that there's been some sort of unjust punishment taking place. and, And I remember, and you might have had something similar happen, maybe said a different way depending upon where you lived, what your parents were like. But before you get that whooping, or maybe after you get it, or, or your mouth washed out with soap, that was a big one in my house. My mouth got me in trouble more than anything else. What would happen is, I, I, this, this hurts me more than it hurts you. Anyone ever heard that? Right? That's a lie. Right? There's no way. Right? My, my hind end is red. The yours isn't. Right? There's no way this hurts you more than me. Then how about the other one of, of I do this because I love you. I'm, once again, I'm pointing back here going, there's no way, right? Look at this. And there in that moment of being chastised or being disciplined by mom or dad, which we need, by the way, it's biblical. We need that correction because God does it himself. God even says that it is uh, a part of our assurance that if we are chastened by him, that we do know that we know him, right? That we are his child. So praise God for his chastening. But in those moments, we don't always feel like mom or dad loves us. But we can still know. Now, normally we don't know it there in that moment, do we? But we know it later on looking back and going, you know, mom and dad corrected me because they love me, and I know they love me because they corrected me, right? Now, there are times in our life as Christians where we go, I don't feel right now. I don't have the goose pimples. I don't have the super spiritual floaty walk going on. But I still know that God loves me. And I still know that that is enough. Then he says, we know that we have passed from death unto life. Uh, as one puts it, in the fourth gospel, eternal life is defined as knowing God, in John 17, 3, who is both the source of life and the giver of life to those who come to him through Jesus Christ. The closeness of the expressions and the relationship between 1 John and the fourth gospel justify interpreting the statement in 1 John 3.14, in terms of its parallel in John 5.24. That is, love for fellow believers is the mark of those who have escaped condemnation because they have come to know God through Jesus Christ. We know that we have passed from death unto life, and he says, because we love the brethren. He that loveth not his brother abideth in death. Now, I want you to go and understand this, though. You can't say, because I do so-and-so, therefore I'm showing love. Actions does not always mean love by himself. And, and on the other side, saying I love you does not always mean love as well. All right? It's one thing to continue to say I love you, I love you, I love you, I love you. But if there is no action, no sacrifice, no giving of oneself, is there really love or is there just words only? There's words only. However, on the other side, one can do a whole lot of things for somebody and yet still not love them. It can be even a self-serving of going, well, if I do this for you, then you've got to do this for me, right? Was that done out of love or is it done out of trying to get something? Right? If anything, it's done out of pride. It's done out of a self-love, not a love for someone else. But he says, we know and have this assurance that because we've passed from death into life, because we do love the brethren, we lay down our lives for the brethren, as he's about to, to deal with. He says that he that loveth not his brother abideth in death. So what does that mean? If you love your brother, then there is life. That's why when we come into the house of God and we see our brothers and sisters in Christ, what should that do to us? 
You just might smile. You just might extend an arm, shake somebody's hand. You just might be, hey, it's good to see you. How was your week? You doing okay? You just might be excited to see somebody because one, we're physically, literally, biologically meant for fellowship relationship with people. But two, you go, hey, that's my brother in Christ. That's my sister in Christ. It's good to see you. It should, shouldn't it? However, most of the time we come in, we're like, oh, let me, we sit down, let me get this. Hey, how are you? Good to see you. Yeah, okay, hi, good to see you. Hi. We try to get out with talking to as few people as possible in church, like they got the cooties, and they ain't got cooties. They might have cooties, I don't know, but if, if you're afraid of cooties, don't shake their hand, but still love them. I mean, for Pete's sake, be happy to see somebody. Why? Because Jesus died for them, and one day you're going to be in heaven with them. You might as well love them now. You, you might as well have that genuineness. Why? Because there might be a day where you're struggling, and you might just go, man, I wish somebody would love me. I wish somebody would extend a hand to me. I wish somebody would ask me how I'm doing. I wish somebody would sit down and just talk to me for a minute. Right? Think about it. You might be that one for somebody one day, but you might come in the next day and need somebody to be that for you too. That's the whole point of, of church and having fellowship together. Now there's some contrasts here that I want to look at. John Stott writes, Love is the surest test of having life as it has already been shown to be the test of being in the light. Chapter 2, verse 10. The contrary is also true. Anyone who does not love remains in death just as he is in darkness. Chapter 2, verse 9 and 11. In the vocabulary of John, love, light, and life belong together, as do hatred, darkness, and death. It is noteworthy, however, that the precise proof of life which he gives is that we love our brothers just as the people the world hates is you, my brothers. To love. Then he continues on and he says, The authentic followers of Jesus Christ who have passed from death to life hunger for Christian fellowship. They do not give up meeting together, Hebrews 10.25, but delight to worship and pray together and to talk together on spiritual topics while their personal relationships with each other are marked by unselfish and caring love. A true biblical love for their brother and sister in Christ means that you care for their heart, their soul, their home, their wife, their kids, their family, that you care about their well-being, you care to make sure that they've got what they need physically, you care about them spiritually. Uh, we we uh, often just go so flippantly around church and our fellowship that we want is just very surface level, right? The, the fellowship that we often think of is just, well, do I know their name? Would I recognize them in food line? Can I shake their hand? May, do I know their whole family that comes to church? Do I know their name? Okay, we're good, right? That's good fellowship right there. And it's not. That's surface level, right? You can learn names by reading a phone book and still not have fellowship with those people, right? Fellowship is a true knowing and giving of oneself to the other. It's a mark of Christianity. It's a mark of being a true believer. And as well, if you are a true believer, then there will be a desire to gather together with the saints of God because it is picturing what's going to take place in the future of what's to come. That we will gather with the saints of God forever around the throne of God to be with Christ forever, to worship perfectly and purely, completely and forever, and to do so without spot or blemish of our heart or our mind, without ever having distractions again, without ever having the wrong motives again, without ever having a disfellowship with one another again. We've got to see the big picture. He says then as well, 
Cruz writes, uh, the purpose of this whole verse appears to be to heighten the force of what it was said in verse 14, that anyone who does not love abides in death. Such a person is like a murderer. And those consumed with murderous intents clearly do not have eternal life abiding in them. In both verses 14 and 15, when describing those who do not love and those who hate, the author uses present tense forms of verbs indicating that his ongoing failure to love or ongoing hatred, which he believes to be the mark of those who remain in death, therefore do not have eternal life in them. Look at this. Verse 14 and 15 go straight together. He says, He that loveth not his brother abideth in death. Whosoever hateth his brother is a murderer. Jesus said, just because you haven't murdered someone physically does not mean you haven't murdered them in your heart. To say someone's dead to you, that's murder. To hate someone, to, to do the opposite of what love is, to love your brother like Cain loved, right? it is a true hatred from within. And he says that there's only death there. One, death towards that person, but there's only death in your own heart. Not life. He says, and you know that no murderer hath eternal life abiding in him. Which is why it's so important to then go back to verse 14. We know that we have passed from death unto life because we love the brethren. And if we do love the brethren, we live in the life and in for the life of Christ and for the life of our brothers and sisters in Christ. Then we look at verse 16 here. <coughs> it says, <clears throat> Hereby perceive we the love of God. Notice he does not say hereby we know fully, completely all of the love that there possibly is of God because we can't know it on this side of the earth. We can't begin to describe the depth and the riches of the love of God. And I'm not talking about just in, in general here. We're talking about we can't even begin to look on a personal level at how much God actually loves you individually. And his love is a love that loves you despite how you are and despite how I am. That God loves you anyways. And it is his love, though, that changes us. He loves us enough to see that our hearts would be changed from darkness to light, from death to life, from hate to love. This is what the love of God does. <clears throat> he says, Hereby we perceive the love of God. He laid down His life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. Hate is this. And we've said it many times that I want to make sure that you've got this sucker nailed down. Hate is self-serving. Alright? So when you say, I love you, but remember when I did that for you, so now you owe me one? That's not loving someone. That's actually hating them. It's serving yourself. Which is not showing them love. It's showing yourself love. Hate is also self-pleasing. When you do something out of genuine love, you do it not expecting anything in return, and you do it, it might make you happy to do it, but you don't do it to make yourself happy, right? Let me, let me put it this way then for our context. If you give to church just so God will bless you, not the right reason. If you give to the poor because you're expecting then God to put an extra couple bucks in your bank account, You've done it with the wrong heart. You've done it out of hate. You've done it out of love for yourself and hate for other people. Now, you would not call it hate, but God calls it hate. It is, it is evident. It is clear. This is, well, not just self-pleasing, but it's self-promoting, especially at the expense or harm of another. 
this is the one that we probably accidentally do more than we realize, especially in our Baptist churches. We often promote ourselves or our leadership or our program or our ministry above everything else because we all think that we have the most important ministry that there is. We all think that we're the best leader of that said ministry that there is. We all think that no one else can do what we do, and we are all replaceable. Me too, especially replaceable. It's a part of it. God uses individuals who are able and willing, and, and um, it was told to me early, before I even went to Bible college, and it was a lesson that stuck with me, and always will. God doesn't call the equipped, He equips the called. If you, if you are going for God and you're serving God with a love, He's going to give you the tools that you need. Just be willing. Be willing and able by faith to receive these things and, and for the Lord uh, to use you. So what then is love? Love then is self-sacrificing for the good, edification, or promotion of another, even if one self-suffers in the process. All right? So let me ask you this. What is loving, all right? Put yourself in a big city on a park bench next to a homeless individual. They happen to come sit next to you and you're eating your sandwich, and you've got, you just bought an extra pair of shoes and an extra jacket just because they were on sale at Marshall's or Ross, and you got them in your bag, and you're eating your, your Jimmy John sub or whatever, and you're just having a good old time on that park bench, and they sit next to you, and they have no food, they have no shoes, and they're freezing cold. And you go, okay, you know what? This is an opportunity for a blessing here. So you give them the shoes, you give them the jacket, and you give them the rest of your sandwich. And then you take a selfie. And then you put it on Facebook. And you write the caption, hashtag blessed, or, you know, be in the hands and feet of Jesus, that sort of thing to be spiritual. Did you do it out of love? I'll answer it, no. <laughs> you didn't. You did it for an extra click, for an extra like. You did it to make yourself feel spiritual. Now, what if no one's there to know? And you do it. And there's no one to give you a like. There's no one to give you a high five. Out of love. A genuineness. You see, it should be genuine. Love doesn't seek to be seen. Love loves out of love. Love loves not to go, hey, look how loving I am. Look at what I've done. Look at how I showed my love. Love just says I love you and shows it and walks away and keeps on going. You see, this is what Jesus did in his ministry. He didn't have to click likes and do all these things. As a matter of fact, many of the miracles that he did were in private homes, areas and things like that. Where it was, And then he would even tell them, go and tell no one. Can you imagine that? And you and I, I mean, if we hold the door for somebody, right, we're going to, did you see me hold that door, right? And we find the littlest of things to show, look how Christian I am, but if we go look how Christian I am, it's not that Christian. True love's motive is love, not self. It is pure and it is purposeful. Thatcher writes, the person who does not sacrifice herself and her wealth for her brothers is no different from the Antichrist and Cain. If it seems too much to ask for this sort of love, John could point out that Jesus laid down his life not only for his friends, but even for the hostile world. Surely then Christians can at least love other Christians. A hearty amen goes right there, right? 
Yet we, we, we don't and we can't. We go, well, you know, how much can I actually sacrifice, right? right? You know, we want to set our love and our limits of how much we're willing to love and sacrifice for Jesus. We tell God how far we're willing to go with our pocketbook, with our time, with our energy, with our effort, with our gifts, with our talent, with what we're willing to do and not do. That's not right. That's not a heart of love. Jesus didn't go and say, I, I'm going I'm to go and I'm going to bleed for him, but I'm not going to die. I, I'll go and I'll, I'll maybe go down there and make a sacrifice, but I, I'm not going to be the sacrifice. No, instead, he willingly laid down his life, despising the shame, but yet looking toward the glory and looking at what was being accomplished through, throughout all of eternity at the grand scheme of things. He didn't care about self-gain. He, he cared to do the will of the Father. And you and I must do the same as he did. To follow the footsteps of Jesus does not mean that pretty little picture that hangs up in living rooms and dining rooms that says the footprints poem. To follow the feet of, of Jesus it is to follow in a way of, of light and love, even at our own expense of suffering. But that we do so because he's magnified and glorified and, and, and changes hearts and lives in the middle of it. True love is found in the gospel. Jesus lived a life of love and compassion for sinners. Some of my favorite verses in all of the gospels are when it says, and he had compassion on the multitudes, or he had compassion. It is that of mercy. It is one of, of absolute love and humility. Second, Jesus died a substitutionary death for sinners. Love sacrifices with nothing being given or promised in return. It just sacrifices to sacrifice for someone who is in need. Would Superman or Spider-Man or Batman be... Well, Batman doesn't count because he's going to go home to his, his mansion anyways, okay? <laughs> I love Batman, but he, he's already rich. He's good. But would Superman or Spider-Man or something like that be the superhero if they went, sacrificed, and, and then you know, made sure how, how everyone... No, no. Right? They, they, they go and they sacrifice, and that's it. They go and they do their job, they, they show, they demonstrate, they sacrifice themselves, that's it. Third, Jesus rose to offer eternal life to the same sinners that he died for. So here's where we get now to the nitty-gritty. He says... That we lay down, and we should lay down our lives for the brethren. But then he goes on to say, "But whoso hath this world's goods, and seeth his brothers have compassion, and shutteth up his bowels of compassion from him, how dwelleth the love of God in him?" Let me break that question down for you. If you have, right, let, put yourself back on that park bench. All right, you've got, they don't. You're able, they're not. Instead, you shut your bowels of compassion. Now granted, that does not mean that we can help every individual. I get that. In fact, I'm, I'm, you know, I understand that uh, the social justice movement is, a, is an absolute terrible and unbiblical thing. However, there is still a need to meet the needs of others. There is still a, a need to meet the needs of those who are actually and desperately in need, uh, not just spiritually by giving them a gospel track, but how about the gospel track and the pair of shoes to the homeless man that you see, right? How about the, the gospel track and the meal to get them through the rest of the day? How about just simply talking and praying for them and, and, and being a friend to make them smile that day? That they probably haven't had anyone not scowl at them in who knows how long. James tells us this. 
back just a, a few pages. You can turn with me to James chapter 2. James chapter 2, verse 15 and 16. He says, I'll back to verse 14. He says, What doth it profit, my brethren, though a man say he hath faith and have not works, can faith save him? Now, there are some who say James is preaching a different gospel. No, he's not. What he is doing is he's showing that real faith does have real works and real fruit. Right? He, he believes absolutely the same way as the Apostle Paul that one can only be born again by grace through faith. And that is the same truth found from Genesis to Revelation and to this day. There is none saved outside of that. However, James says, how are you going to tell me that you're saved and have faith in God when you do not demonstrate that faith? He says, if a brother or sister be naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you say to them, depart in peace, be ye warmed and filled, notwithstanding ye give them not those things which are needful to the body, what doth it profit? It would be like this, right? If I, if I show up and I, I don't know why, I'm sorry, Stephen, I'm going to pick on you again, right? If I come and I knock on Stephen's door and I go, Steve, man, I, I ain't had anything to eat in three days, man. Can you give me a sandwich? And Stephen goes, I have bread, I have turkey, I got cheese. I, I even got, got mustard, even got brown spicy mustard. And looks at me and says, my brother, may God warm you and fill you and take care of you, my brother. I believe he will. And closes the door. <laughs> what do y'all think about that? Now, he hasn't done that, okay? All right, and I'm sure he wouldn't. I'm sure he does got the, I'm sure he would even offer me the brown spicy mustard. But what would we think about that? Would we say, is there much faith or love demonstrated there? We wouldn't. Because God doesn't. He says, whosoever haveth this and sees his brother in need and says no to his brother who's in need, is the love of God really in him? And the answer, of course, is not given because it's a rhetorical question because we don't need to give the answer. John doesn't need to write down in capital letters, no, certainly not. We know the answer in our heart already. If we truly love, then we will express it. Love does not just speak, love acts. And it does so in a loving, a true loving way. Sorensen writes, The reference to bowels of compassion is an idiomatic reference to the seat of the tender emotions. Common lore of the ancients was that the intestines, or the bowels, were whence such warm emotions as compassion, tenderness, and kindness emanated. In more modern colloquial thought we would uh, express the same in referring to one's heart the thought here is one who has no compassion or concern for another the point is for one who has material ability and sees a brother who has need notwithstanding he hardens his heart toward the needy brother john thus asks how dwelleth the love of god in him it is this to which john applies the principle of laying down one's life or giving of oneself for the brethren it comes down to the nitty-gritty of being willing to help another in their time of need that is true love that is bowels of compassion. So in closing today, throughout this whole passage, we find that we must love God, His people, and even, and maybe even especially, the lost souls with the same love that Christ loved. If these evidence are in your life, and you should have a firm assurance of your salvation. You can certainly be able to say, I know I've passed from death into life. I also know that I've passed from death into life because of what Jesus has done for me. And I know that even though I make mistakes, I've still passed from death into life because of what Jesus has done for me. That does not change, regardless of how I feel, even the things that I do and even my failures. And praise God, it doesn't. But if these are missing in your life, today come to Christ. Come and experience what true love is like. 
True love is not going to be found anywhere else except at the feet of Jesus. May we love Christ and share His love in this world that so desperately needs it. Amen? Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank You for this time. We thank You for this day that we can gather, that we can worship You, that we can study Your Word. I pray that You would help each one of us, God, to love You, to love others. Lord, to truly know what it means. And as well, God, to have that assurance of, of knowing You, Lord. God, I pray that You would give each one that needs that today, that You would reach down and touch their hearts and their minds. God, that You would stir within us, that You would today do a, a great and a mighty work. Lord, we need a, a touch from You today, Lord. Lord, I, I might be able to preach and others might be able to sing, but God, unless You move hearts, then, then all we've done is, is just meet. God, I pray that we would truly meet with You today. Lord, that our hearts would be changed by, by the truth found in Your Word. And God, that we would seek to go from this place and to live these truths out in our life. God, that we would seek to daily humbly sacrifice to love you, to love our brothers and sisters in Christ. We love and we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.